Good morning, Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald, he is Saeed Jones, and you are watching AM to DM. All right, friends, you know what time it is and you know what's about to happen. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford is about to begin her testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Here is how this morning's show is going to work. We will be cutting in with her live testimony, giving updates on the hearing, so we will very much mm -hmm. be going live to that hearing. And as always, we'll be talking with really, really smart people about the big picture. Absolutely. Dr. Blasey Ford uh, will begin speaking in a few moments, um, but until then, uh, we're going to go live from the district. Mm -hmm. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Nitty Prakash. Nitty, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning. Bracing ourselves for quite a day here. Absolutely. I can't pretend that it doesn't feel a bit like we're bracing ourselves for a storm. Uh, Nitty, uh, first of all, where are you this morning? And can you tell us uh, what's going on at the moment? Sure. So right now we're in the Hart Senate building. Um, so we're near where the hearing is happening. We're not right outside the room. But basically the security over there is pretty tight and they're not letting in a lot of people uh, who weren't registered beforehand uh, to actually cover the hearing inside the room itself. Um, as you can see behind me, there are a lot of protesters here today. So like all the way into both Senate buildings and, you know, like basically lining all of the balconies. There are, there are people uh, in mostly I support Dr. Christine Blasey Ford t-shirts um, and other slogans along those lines. All right, Nitty, I wanted to ask, for somebody that's tuning in right now, for somebody that's waking up, maybe didn't have their eye on the news last night, what do people need to know about this hearing which is about to start? So what's about to happen basically is that uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to hear first from Dr. Ford uh, and then from uh, Judge Kavanaugh. And the way that it's set up is that the Democratic senators on that committee basically said that they wanted to uh, question both of them themselves. So they will have 50 minutes between all of them. And then uh, the attorney who was brought in by the Republicans to question both of them will have uh, 50 minutes in total with each of them uh, as well afterwards. Um, so that's kind of how it's going to play out. But to begin with, we'll hear Christi Dr. Christine Blasey Ford uh, reading out her statement. Okay. And, and to be clear, um, the testimony that was leaked or at least published last night from Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, and I believe uh, Brett Kavanaugh's testimony, is that exactly what we will be hearing from them this morning before uh, the cross-examinations? Exactly. That's right. That's the prepared testimony statement that they'll be reading out to begin with. And then they'll be uh, questioned by both sides, basically. All right. Questioned by both sides. Now, here's a tweet from Zoe Tillman. Senate Judiciary staff say they interviewed two men who believe they had the encounter with Christine Blasey Ford, not Brett Kavanaugh. There were no details provided about who the men are or what they said. Nitty, how significant is this development from last night? Well, exactly. So this is kind of like the thing, right? This uh, was released, I think, last night around 10 or 11 p.m. Uh, and there are minimal details about who these men are or what the details are of what they're saying. So, you know, I think that uh, it's really difficult to judge, you know, how, how credible they are, what exactly it is that they're saying. Um, it, I mean, maybe we'll learn more about that during the hearing today. Okay, and Nitty, of course, um, as both of us were awake last night following the timeline, it felt like there was a lot of new information. So I also wanted to ask, in addition to these two men coming forward with uh, their interpretation of the events, uh, what are the other allegations that Brett Kavanaugh is facing? So in the past week, two other women have come forward um, publicly and, you know, given their names and have accused Brett Kavanaugh of okay, Nitty, uh, two different incidents of sexual misconduct. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford is sitting down right now. So we're going to go to see the beginning of her testimony. 
she prepares for this. Nitty, Nitty, we're coming back to you. Again, sorry, you were giving us a rundown of the allegations. We just wanted to watch as Dr. Blasey Ford prepared to make, prepared to make her remarks. So could you keep going with those allegations? Yeah, absolutely. So two other women, Deborah Ramirez and Julie Swetnick, have come forward in the past week um, and have accused Brett Kavanaugh of uh, two different incidents of sexual misconduct. One of them uh, during high school, also in 1982, I think it was, um, and then the other one during college. Uh, so those are two uh, two women who uh, whose lawyers said that they were speaking with the Senate Judiciary Committee earlier this week, but it's unclear where those conversations went. They're not testifying today, um, and that is something that. Democrats have also raised that not only those two women, but other people who have come forward and said that they might have some knowledge of what happened uh, with Dr. Ford, who haven't been called to testify before the committee today. Um, so on top of that, there are also uh, a few anonymous letters who have been sent to various senators. Uh, just yesterday, actually, two anonymous letters that were sent to senators uh, accusing Brett Kavanaugh of other uh, incidents of sexual misconduct. But again, there are no details on that. Uh, and these letters were completely anonymous, didn't have, you know, times or places on them as far as we know. Okay. Well, here's a tweet from Eugene Scott uh, quoting The Fix at The Washington Post. Everything about how this hearing will work was set up by Republicans. They controlled the majority of the Senate and thus this committee, and thus they controlled the process. Nitty, this sounds really important. How are Republicans framing this hearing? What are the terms that they're trying to create? And of course, how are Democrats trying to push back? So Republican leaders have said that they want to hear out Dr. Blasey Ford and that they want this to be a fair hearing. At the same time, they've been casting doubt on her allegations, um, basically since she came forward. Um, so over the past week, they've been sort of... Uh, questioning whether she's confused that someone else might have assaulted her and not uh, not Judge Kavanaugh. And they've just been casting doubt on uh, on her allegations for the past week or so. And they've sort of reiterated that they fully plan to vote on Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation. Uh, they've actually set a hearing for tomorrow morning, um, which they set even before they heard the testimony today, obviously. Um, so that's kind of how they've been framing it from the Republican side. Um, from the Democrat side, I mean, something that they've still been saying, you know, up until yesterday, they were saying that this should be investigated by the FBI before they hold a hearing. Um, that's something that, uh, as far as we know, the president is the only one who can actually instruct the FBI to investigate. Um, that's something that he hasn't done so far. And it's, uh, it's a call that the Republicans have said um, is not necessary and that this is the correct place for this to be played out. All right, well, Nitty, we keep going back, we've been doing it all week, to the Anita Hill hearing, and for good reason. There are even senators sitting in Ford's hearing today who were there in 1991. Uh, you had a piece, do Senate Republicans still think Anita Hill was lying? They won't say. Nitty, why is that? It's hard to say, but, you know, it was interesting yesterday. So basically that there are four uh, Republican senators who will vote on Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation um, who heard out Anita Hill in 1991 and decided that they didn't believe her and voted to confirm Clarence Thomas. Um, so I circled back to them this week and they basically kind of didn't really want to want to address that. Um, so one senator in particular, Orrin Hatch, who voted to confirm Clarence Thomas, has said repeatedly over the years that he thinks that Anita, Anita Hill lied in her testimony. Um, he said that explicitly as recently as like 2010, I think. But uh, I think, uh, you know, it's an indication of the attitude that they're coming into this with, perhaps. 
Okay. Um, Chuck Grassley is speaking right now. He happened to be one of those three senators who sat in on those hearings. We are making the decision not to cut live to him. So let's talk about Anita Hill more. We have a tweet here from Tanya Melendez. She says, for those of us who remember watching Anita Hill give testimony, this morning is the worst kind of deja vu. So to that point, there are a lot of parallels. Um, after Anita Hill, there was something called the Year of Women in Congress. So Nidhi, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about the impact of those hearings and if that might have anything to do with what will play out this morning. So, I mean, the impact of those hearings obviously, you know, were a really historic event. And I think uh, for people on both sides of the aisle sort of marked uh, a really uh, a particularly kind of divisive moment. Um, I think that uh, Dr. Hill has, you know, been speaking out since then as well. And even, I think, recently published uh, an editorial in support of Dr. Blasey Ford as well. Um, so, I mean, obviously the way that that hearing was conducted is something that we're thinking about a lot now, especially now that we're in the kind of Me Too era where we're talking more openly about sexual harassment and assault and that these things are handled differently in other industries. So I think that for some people seeing what plays out here today, um, is sort of a test of whether things have uh, changed in any way uh, in politics, I guess, uh, in this new era. Yeah, and, and, and to Saeed's point, though, in 1991, we saw midterm elections where a lot of women actually then, after the Anita Hill hearings, did get elected. Do we have any idea if how either way this plays out if it's going to affect the 2018 midterms? So, you know, I think that uh, no one on either side have been eager to preempt that. But certainly, you know, even before these allegations came up, the Supreme Court nomination was going to be a major issue in the midterms. So I, I can't see how it won't play into a lot of contests around the country. And we know that there are a lot of women candidates um, up for election in various districts uh, around the nation as well. Okay, as Chuck Grassley continues his remarks, let's talk about Trump's surreal bizarre, unendurable, 80-minute-long press conference was last that, night. Was that like last week? Can you believe that was only no, last that night? That was last night. That, was but last it felt night. like right. it was last year. Uh, here's a tweet from Kelly O'Donnell. One unexpected takeaway in this free-willing press conference is, is striking that Donald Trump expressed a desire to keep Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein uh, and a possibility of replacing Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, Nettie, uh, huge, uh, but of course that was just one surprising moment uh, among many. Uh, what else stood to you about Trump and will any of what he said last night matter? So this was a rambling, very, very long uh, press conference that he had. And certainly those points that you mentioned, I think, are things to keep our eyes on. Um, but the other thing that happened was that um, at some point during the press conference, uh, a male reporter kind of said to him, you know, it'd be great if you'd call on some of my women colleagues, uh, which he hadn't been doing, uh, at which point Trump was kind of like, yeah, sure, it doesn't make a difference to me. Um, and then he went on to call on two women reporters and uh, actually pretty much talked over them and at one point told one of them to sit down, uh, which she refused to do and kept asking him questions. And I think it's also interesting that the questions that she was asking him were specifically about whether the allegations of sexual assault that have been leveled against him have an impact on how he sees this hearing. Uh, right now with Judge Kavanaugh. Yeah, and again, just like rambling, rambling, rambling. We also just mentioned Rosenstein because there is just Oof. so much news. Do we know, there was talk earlier in the week that they were going to meet today, this afternoon on Thursday. Do we know if that meeting's still going to take place? 
So as far as we know, it's still scheduled to take place today, but Trump did mention last night that he might move it. Um, and he said specifically because he didn't want to interfere with this hearing that's happening right now. So we'll see what happens with that. We'll be keeping an eye on it. Okay, well, Nidhi, as always, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We may be coming back to you later. Of course, uh, there's a lot that could still happen this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, listen, uh, Chuck, Chuck Grassley is still speaking, but there is no way around it. Today is going to be a very difficult day. Earlier this morning, Rebecca Traster tweeted, good morning to everyone else for whom morning is barely discernible because there was no sleeping. And one of our favorite viewers, a queer mermaid tweeted, good morning to everyone who feels like they are on trial today. And Jessica Valenti distilled the message even further, saying, good morning to women only. Look, there's no way around it. This week has been very difficult for women, for survivors. The Kavanaugh news cycle is a hard thing to cope with. Absolutely. I read somewhere last night that uh, calls to abuse, domestic violence, trauma hotlines have definitely skyrocketed in response to this news cycle. It's difficult. We have to say that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. To say that. Well, to that point, here's a message from Vox's Liz Plank. Please take a moment to realize that almost every single woman you know is dealing with trauma that you know nothing about. And a helpful reminder from writer Ann T. Donahue, please remember you're not a weak or apathetic person if you can't and don't want to watch the hearing today. You can still be a fighter and an ally if you need to take care of yourself. And we have some sage advice from author Celeste Ng. This is basically how I'm going to get through the day listening to Lemonade. Take care of yourselves today, everyone. Step back and do what you need. Yeah, absolutely. And we really recommend you take all that advice Whew. to heart. Listen, when we come back, we will continue to keep our eyes on DC, going live with that hearing, uh, and we'll also be talking with Jamia Wilson and Jacqueline Friedman to break down today's news even further. Is Chuck Grassley still talking? He's probably still talking. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Chuck Grassley is still talking. I, for one, am shocked to oh, learn really? that Chuck Grassley is uh, grandstanding. I don't. Uh, who could have foreseen this? Who could have shocked. foreseen it? Well, listen, <laughs> while we are still waiting for Dr. Ford's testimony to begin, in the meantime, here's a tweet from New York Magazine. Both Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge were drunkenly laughing during the attack, reads Christine Blasey Ford's written testimony. They both seem to be having a good time. Ooh, and here's another key passage from her testimony. Brett's assault on me drastically altered my life. For a long time, I was too afraid and ashamed to tell anyone the details. I did not want to tell my parents that I, at age 15, was in a house without any parents present, drinking beer with boys. I tried to convince myself that because Brett did not rape me, I should be able to move on and just pretend that it had never happened. It's an incredible statement. It's an incredible statement, and I'm struck too. Just yesterday, you read um, a brief excerpt of Andrea Konstad's victim impact statement about Bill Cosby. And when we were working on the scripts this morning, there was a moment where, do you want to talk about what happened? No, no, no do it. Yeah, where we honestly thought, oh, is this a mistake? Is this the wrong? Because so many of these statements from victims sound so similar. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's just like a, a disturbing loop. A thing that has to be said over and over again. Yeah. Writer Jacqueline Friedman and Jamia Wilson, director of Feminist Press, join us now to share their thoughts on Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony. Good morning to both of you. Hi. Thank you both so much for joining us on a pretty intense morning. Uh, Jamia, uh, what has stood out to you most so far about what we've seen of the published testimony from Dr. Blasey Ford? 
the published testimony was bold, courageous, and also just filled with integrity and purpose. And what I really see from her is this understanding that she should have never even been put in this position. Um, she should have never had to be in a situation where she would be humiliated and disbelieved and have to live out uh, a trauma again in public, but that she feels that her civic duty is to make sure that the truth is out there to prevent this from happening, to make sure that she can stand with other survivors and also to ensure that the highest court in the land doesn't have another abuser on it. And so I felt that the testimony was strong. And as someone who went to a private school that actually did a lot of events with Georgetown Prep, I felt deeply moved by her unearthing what can happen at all class levels across cultures because rape culture is so prevalent and doesn't discriminate. And it does not discriminate. Jacqueline, same question. What, what about the testimony struck you? Just how uh, believable her story is, how, how much it's a story that so many of us have experienced in one form or another, how, how utterly coherent and consistent she's been. Um, but I also am just haunted by the fact that she never wanted to come forward. I know she now says it's her civic duty and I'm so in awe of her strength and being able to do this now. But I also just am, am struck by how she was hounded into this by privacy leaks um, and by press and, and politicians coming after her and exposing her name non-consensually. It's, it's yet another violation. Mm-hmm. And Jacqueline, let, let's talk about that. Let's go a little further. Um, because of course, I mean, journalists, commentators, we are all about to, we're doing it in real time, uh, parse her testimony and parse the events of the rest of this day. So we'll start with you, Jacqueline, and I could, and I'd love to hear from you as well, Jamia. What are some things that we should keep in mind um, as we talk about this so that we can do our jobs, um, but do it in a thoughtful way? Well, we should keep in mind that it's very difficult for a person who's been sexually assaulted to mistake who they were sexually assaulted by. I want to put that out there. I've been sexually assaulted twice. I've never felt confused about whether it was the guy who did it or some guy who, if you squint, maybe looked like him. Um, One of the things that I really want us to keep in mind when we're listening is who we're not listening to today We're not listening to the other victims who have come forward. We're not getting to listen to all of the corroborating witnesses that corroborate their accounts. Uh, You know, there's a lot we're not going to get to hear from today, specifically because of the way that the Republicans have structured this investigation and have refused to actually let the FBI or any free independent investigation happen. So as much as what we hear today from Dr. Blasey Ford and from Brett Kavanaugh, um, I think we have to keep in mind who's not getting to speak. And then the other thing that I'm really going to be keeping in mind is that Brett Kavanaugh has already demonstrated an incredible comfort with lying under oath. And Jamia, what about you? So one of the things that I've also been thinking about is the fact that we really need to confront who we view as credible in our society and what are the systemic reasons for that. And the fact that Brett Kavanaugh has a long history of lying, as Jacqueline mentioned, and the fact that he still, even at this point in this process, is still being deeply considered is problematic. The fact that from my birth state of South Carolina, Lindsey Graham has been saying all sorts of things that are victim blaming as well as gaslights to all survivors, but specifically to the survivors who have boldly shared their stories. 
to say that we are living in a society right now where credibility is attached to identity that is related to white men, patriarchy and white supremacy. And it's very important for us to dismantle that and to talk about who is not being listened to, who is being discredited and who is being undermined. And I also wanted to just mention that Bill Cosby is also an abuser and is being rightly held accountable. But we also need to have a conversation about the fact that there's a conversation happening around our criminal justice system that is not holding other accusers, uh, other abusers accountable at the same weight and um, with the same sort of heft that and gravity that they also deserve. So what I want from this is justice. And I want to hear more conversations about what that will look like what justice will look like moving forward. Um, speaking of survivors though, keeping the focus there, and Jacqueline, uh, let's, let's start with you and then go to you, Jamia. You just mentioned that you yourself are a survivor. What advice would you give to people who are having a very hard time coping with the Kavanaugh news cycle and also just to have the Bill Cosby happening at the same time? I mean, the first thing I would say is I am right there with you. It has been, uh, it has been a hellacious few weeks uh, just to get up every day and live in the world um, and hear what the president is saying and and people who are supposed to be thought leaders and elected officials, um, it's been a, just a constant brick to the gut. So the first thing I want to say to survivors is you are not alone. I believe you. Lots of other people believe you. Um, I also want to say you don't owe anybody your story. You know, there's been a lot of really brave storytelling about sexual violence uh, on the why I didn't report hashtag and, and other places in response to these news cycles. And, and I appreciate all that storytelling and I sometimes participate in it, but I also don't want survivors to feel like the only way to be a survivor right now and to be believed and seen is to expose uh, this vulnerable, horrible memory. Uh, if that's not what you want to do, we believe you and trust you and, and we are with you anyhow. Nobody deserves to hear your story unless you want to tell it. Um, yeah. And just take care. You don't owe anybody anything. You, you didn't do anything wrong. So you do what you need to do. Jamia, anything you would add on that point? I would just say that it's really important for us to understand that believing survivors is extremely important to one, just humanity, but then also important to us eradicating rape culture and really focusing on transforming this problem in our society and stopping the normalization of sexual violence. I also believe that it's extremely important for us to specifically address this with children. The next generation needs to be having these conversations as well. And it's important for us in this moment to be talking to the young people in our lives and checking in with them and also being a support and a listening ear and to be conscious of the fact that we've all been conditioned in this society to be a part of a victim blaming culture. And so it's important for us to be working on ourselves and showing up for the people who need us in, in their lives. Showing up for the people who need us. Uh, Diane Feinstein is, is still with her opening remarks. So as we continue here, I, I also wanted to ask you, Jacqueline, about um, what do you think about the phenomenon of the Senate uh, Republicans opting to have outside counsel um, <laughs> ask questions uh, of the doctor, because that seems very significant, right? Again, Chuck Crassley, he interrogated uh, Anita Hill. So it seems significant that he would opt to, as some people on Twitter have just said, outsource his questions. 
it's completely unprecedented and also completely transparent, right? This, this is an all-male panel of Senate Republicans on this committee, and they know what the optics of that are. They're not doing anything to get more women on the Judicial Committee or in the Senate delegation for Republicans. They're just hiring a woman to take the heat for them, right? They're just hiring a woman to literally parrot what they want her to say and put a lady face on the patriarchy. Uh, it's <laughs> It makes me very angry, in case you couldn't tell. So I just hope people don't fall for it. It's so incredible incredibly transparent what they're doing. If they really were interested in issues of gender here, they'd be behaving diametrically opposite to everything they're doing. Uh, instead, they just think that they can put a woman's face on their own words and their own questions and their own actions and, and paper it over. Uh, and I'm not fooled. And you're not fooled. Mm -hmm. um, Jamia, anything else to, say, to add to that? Yes, I think that what Jacqueline said is exactly on the mark. And I think it's really important for us right now to look at these optics and believe that what we see is exactly what we're getting. And also to understand that we saw in 1991 what the perils are of this sort of scenario. And if we do not change the course of history and act now, if people of conscience do not demand a change, then history is deigned to repeat itself. So I think it's very important that we support the people who are protesting today, that we lift up the people who are taking action and taking a stand against this, and that we continue to fight. Continue to fight. Well, Jamia Wilson and Jacqueline Friedman, we appreciate all of the work you do as writers and publishers. Uh, thank you both for joining us this morning. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right, and of course, I believe uh, Senator Feinstein is still speaking, but we're going to go live uh, to the hearing right now. It's looking like Dr. Ford will be speaking soon. We'll go to that. With their own serious allegations of sexual assault involving Brett Kavanaugh. This past Sunday, we learned about Debbie Ramirez, who was a student at Yale with Brett Kavanaugh. She too did not want to come forward but after being approached by reporters, she told her story. She was at a college party where Kavanaugh exposed himself to her. She recalls pushing him away and then seeing him laughing and pulling his pants up. Then yesterday, Judy Swetnick came forward to say that she had experiences of being at house parties with Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge. She recounted seeing Kavanaugh engage, and I quote, in abusive and physically aggressive behavior toward girls, end quote, including attempts to, quote, remove or shift girls' clothing, end quote, not taking, quote, no for an answer, grabbing girls, quote, without their consent, end quote, and targeting, quote, particular girls so that they could be taken advantage of, end quote. Each of these stories are troubling on their own, and each of these allegations should be investigated by the FBI. All three women have said they would like the FBI to investigate, please do so. All three have said they have other witnesses and evidence to corroborate their accounts, and yet Republicans continue to blindly push forward. So, today we're moving forward with a hearing and being asked to assess the credibility 
of Brett Kavanaugh. He's made several statements about how his focus was on school, basketball, service projects, and going to church. He declared that he, quote, never, end quote, drank so much he couldn't remember what happened, and he has, quote, always treated women with dignity and respect, end quote. And while he has made these declarations, more and more people have come forward challenging his characterization of events and behaviors. James Roach, his freshman roommate at Yale, stated Kavanaugh was, and I quote again, frequently, incoherently drunk, end quote. And that was when, quote, he became aggressive and belligerent, end quote, when he was drunk. Liz Swisher, a friend of his from Yale, said, and I quote, there's no medical way I can say that he was blacked out, but it's not credible for him to say that he has no memory lapses in the nights that he drank to excess, end quote. Lynn Brooks, a college classmate, said the picture Kavanaugh is trying to paint doesn't match her memories of him. And I quote, he's trying to paint himself as some kind of choir boy. You can't lie your way onto the Supreme Court. And with that statement out, he's gone too far. Okay, I, I have to admit, uh, just watching that few minutes, my, I found myself holding my breath every time mm. the camera cut to Dr. Blasey Ford. It looks difficult. It's an emotional morning. Okay, well, as Diane Feinstein continues to speak, as is her right, uh, we're going to get on with our show for now, uh, but we will go back to the testimony when she begins to speak, Dr. Blasey Ford herself. Meanwhile, the UN General Assembly is still underway this week. If for some reason you managed to forget with everything else happening, our own wonderful Hayes Brown is sitting across the studio with the Foreign Minister of Latvia. Good morning, Hayes. Good morning, guys. That's right. I am joined now by Edgar Zrinkovich, the Minister for Foreign Affairs for the country of Latvia. Welcome. Thanks so much for taking time today to join us. So you're in town for the General Assembly. Were you in the GA Hall on Tuesday during President Trump's speech? Yes, I was. What did you make of the laughter during that one awkward moment? Well, not much because I have been attending those assembly meetings for nine years. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I have seen a different reaction on different things. I think that uh, we should not also exaggerate the reaction of uh, the assembly for that or another statement or for that or another sentence. So you would say we should just put that to the side, but do you think that the reaction itself shows that there's a sort of less fear of the U.S. this year than there might have been, less like worry and more like the U.S. is um, being mocked more? No, not at all. I think that uh, they have never been the kind of fear or uh, they have never been the kind of sense of uh, terror or something. I think that each new administration, when it comes to the office and uh, starts to conduct the foreign policy, uh, is being expected with some kind of, uh, let's say, attention, what will be the focus, what will be the priorities. Mm -hmm. And compared with the last uh, year's speech, I think that uh, this year we have seen that President Trump was focusing more on some uh, very specific priorities. Right. And uh, I do believe that, uh, well, we can discuss those issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm 
actually very much supporter of multilateralism in right. the international relations. But I also see some of the points that U.S. administration is making. And in our U.S.-EU discussion... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but Dr. Ford is sure. now speaking, so we are going to toss to her right now. Microphone just a little bit closer to you, please. Uh, can the whole box go a little bit closer? That's what I'm trying, forward? Senator. No. Okay. Well, then, then. I'll lean forward. Thank you. I could. I could. Thank you. Okay. Is this good? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman Grassley and rank, Ranking Member Feinstein, members of the committee. My name is Christine Blasey Ford. I am a professor of psychology at Palo Alto University and a research psychologist at the Stanford University School of Medicine. I won't detail my educational background since it has already been summarized. I have been married to Russell Ford since 2002 and we have two children. I am here today not because I want to be. I am terrified. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. I have described the events publicly before. I summarized them in my letter to Ranking Member Feinstein and again in a letter to Chairman Grassley. I understand and appreciate the importance of your hearing from me directly about what happened to me and the impact that it has had on my life and on my family. I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I attended the Holton Arms School in Bethesda, Maryland from 1978 to 1984. Holton Arms is an all-girls school that opened in 1901. During my time at the school, girls at Holton Arms frequently met and became friendly with boys from all boys schools in the area, including the Landon School, Georgetown Prep, Gonzaga High School, as well as our country clubs and other places where kids and families socialized. This is how I met Brett Kavanaugh, the boy who sexually assaulted me. During my freshman and sophomore school years, when I was 14 and 15 years old, my group of friends intersected with Brett and his friends for a short period of time. I had been friendly with a classmate of Brett's for a short time during my freshman and sophomore year. And it was through that connection that I attended a number of parties that Brett also attended. We did not know each other well, but I knew him and he knew me. In the summer of 1982, like most summers, I spent most every day at the Columbia Country Club in Chevy Chase, Maryland, swimming and practicing diving. One evening that summer, after a day of diving at the club, I attended a small gathering at a house in the Bethesda area. There were four boys I remember specifically being at the house. Brett Kavanaugh, Mark Judge, a boy named PJ, and one other boy whose name I cannot recall. I also remember my friend Leland attending. I do not remember all of the details of how that gathering came together, but like many that summer, it was almost surely a spur-of-the-moment gathering. I truly wish I could be more helpful with more detailed answers to all of the questions that have and will be asked about how I got to the party and where it took place and so forth. I don't have all the answers and I don't remember as much as I would like to. But the details that 
about that night that bring me here today are the ones I will never forget. They have been seared into my memory and have haunted me episodically as an adult. When I got to the small gathering, people were drinking beer in a small living room, family room type area on the first floor of the house. I drank one beer. Brett and Mark were visibly drunk. Early in the evening, I went up a very narrow set of stairs leading from the living room to a second floor to use the restroom. When I got to the top of the stairs, I was pushed from behind into a bedroom across from the bathroom. I couldn't see who pushed me. Brett and Mark came into the bedroom and locked the door behind them. There was music playing in the bedroom. It was turned up louder by either Brett or Mark once we were in the room. I was pushed onto the bed and Brett got on top of me. He began running his hands over my body and grinding into me. I yelled, hoping that someone downstairs might hear me, and I tried to get away from him, but his weight was heavy. Brett groped me and tried to take off my clothes. He had a hard time because he was very inebriated and because I was wearing a one-piece bathing suit underneath my clothing. I believed he was going to rape me. I tried to yell for help. When I did, Brett put his hand over my mouth to stop me from yelling. This is what terrified me the most and has had the most lasting impact on my life. It was hard for me to breathe and I thought that Brett was accidentally going to kill me. Both Brett and Mark were drunkenly laughing during the attack. They seemed to be having a very good time. Mark seemed ambivalent, at times urging Brett on, and at times telling him to stop. A couple of times I made eye contact with Mark and thought he might try to help me, but he did not. During this assault, Mark came over and jumped on the bed twice while Brett was on top of me. And the last time that he did this, we toppled over and Brett was no longer on top of me. I was able to get up and run out of the room. Directly across from the bedroom was a small bathroom. I ran inside the bathroom and locked the door. I waited until I heard Brett and Mark leave the bedroom, laughing and loudly walk down the narrow stairway, pinballing off the walls on the way down. I waited, and when I did not hear them come back up the stairs, I left the bathroom, went down the same stairwell, through the living room, and left the house. I remember being on the street and feeling an enormous sense of relief that I had escaped that house and that Brett and Mark were not coming outside after me. Brett's assault on me drastically altered my life. For a very long time, I was too afraid and ashamed to tell anyone these details. I did not want to tell my parents that I, at age 15, was in a house without any parents present, drinking beer with boys. I convinced myself that because Brett did not rape me, I should just move on and just pretend that it didn't happen. Over the years, I told very, very few friends that I had this traumatic experience. 
I told my husband before we were married that I had experienced a sexual assault. I had never told the details to anyone, the specific details, until May 2012 during a couple's counseling session. The reason this came up in counseling is that my husband and I had completed a very extensive, very long remodel of our home, and I insisted on a second front door, an idea that he and others disagreed with and could not understand. In explaining why I wanted a second front door, I began to describe the assault in detail. I recall saying that the boy who assaulted me could someday be on the US Supreme Court and spoke a bit about his background at an elitist all-boys school in Bethesda, Maryland. My husband recalls that I named my attacker as Brett Kavanaugh. After that May 2012 therapy session, I did my best to ignore the memory. All right, uh, welcome back. Uh, as difficult as that was to watch, uh, I also can't ignore her strength. Mm -hmm. um, but we were just watching Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony along with you um, and following along as Twitter as well. Yeah, following along on Twitter. Uh, Pix Maven and you have changed your username to sick and tired of being sick and tired. You said, oh my God, my heart just jumped into my throat and I want to cry. I cannot believe how much this is dredging up. Yeah, I have a tweet here from David Mack here at BuzzFeed News. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, her voice shaking, makes her opening remarks. I am here today not because I want to be. I am terrified. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. And listen, that hearing is going to continue to stream on Periscope, right. but right now we're going back to Hayes so he can resume his conversation with the foreign minister of Latvia. Back to you, Hayes. Thanks, guys, and thank you for sticking with us, everyone out there. Uh, that's right, I am still joined by the foreign minister of Latvia. So to continue our conversation where we left off, um, Latvia is one of a few countries that used to be a part of the Soviet Union that in the early 90s gained its independence uh, and is now a member of both the European Union and NATO. What sort of things do you worry about when it comes to Russia's involvement in world affairs? Well, first of all, we are very much concerned about the very aggressive foreign policy that Russia has pursued for now 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to remind about uh, the attack against Georgia in 2008 and then Ukraine in 2014. And that's why we are very grateful to those nations of uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, for providing security. Also, uh, the United States uh, really do play a very critical role in providing security for all part of the world. There were some tensions before uh, during last year about whether the U.S. would still have those sort of strong uh, uh, support for NATO. Has that changed in the last year, or are you still, or is NATO still on tender hooks? Look, uh, I think that there is one issue where I could agree 100% with the United States, with all the administrations, be it President Trump or President Obama or President Bush. That's the spending for defense that mm -hmm. NATO European allies should have at 2%. My country, Latvia, has 2% threshold reached this year. And I would say that despite all the rhetoric sometimes and all the things that we are hearing in the press and also analytical kind of discussion, the U.S. involvement, the practical U.S. involvement in NATO is very strong. And I have seen that actually some of programs we have agreed, like financial support programs to the Baltic states, like also U.S. military presence in the region, uh, it's actually here and it's actually stronger than ever. Um, 
Keeping on Russia, though, we've seen a rise in cases where Russia has used or been accused of using chemical weapons to take action against adversaries. Uh, the script halls in Salisbury back in March, and just this week, uh, just last week, we heard reports about possibly one of the members of Pussy Riot being poisoned. Are, is that the sort of thing that concerns you in Latvia? Yes, indeed, and we think that this kind of uh, use of uh, weapons of mass destruction, because the chemical weapon is weapon of uh, mass destruction, is something that we all should be very much concerned. And the use of uh, the so-called Novichok uh, agent in the United Kingdom is something that uh, I believe must be addressed uh, very seriously. As you know, there has been very coordinated and very joint action by both the United States and European Union nations, mm -hmm. expulsion of some of uh, Russian spies and also some sanctions have been added. Uh, so uh, we need to send a very clear signal that this kind of hybrid attack against the one of NATO or European nations will be met with the very strong, very, I would say, uh, sharp reaction. I also believe that uh, there are some suspicious cases. You mentioned uh, the Pussy Riot mm -hmm. guy, but uh, there have been also cases with Mr. Karamurza, who uh, fell uh, ill at least twice, and they have been suspicious. So uh, such kind of uh, accident should be investigated, and uh, I think that they should be taken very seriously. You said that there should be a strong reaction. What do you think that reaction should really be? And do you think that the United Kingdom and U.S. and other Western countries have really done enough to push back on Russia in this? Well, first of all, I think that we sent a very strong signal in March when uh, many European and NATO countries decided to expel, also Latvia decided to expel uh, some Russian spies. Second, we all waited for investigation. And you know that the United Kingdom just published some results of the investigation. We got also briefing. Uh, I also know that the United States have imposed additional sanctions. I'm advocating also for the reaction at the European Union level that we should follow, because actually it's our territory, it's European territory. Even if the United Kingdom is leaving right. EU, it doesn't mean that uh, it leaves Europe. And I think that uh, if uh, we can see that there is also the conviction uh, mm -hmm. of those guys, at least uh, in absentia, then we should also elaborate on what we can do more to actually be more proactive in uh, rebuffing such kind of uh, attacks. Latvia has been on the forefront of really rebuffing Russian cyber attacks since uh, the dawn of the 21st century. As we come towards the midterm elections here in the U.S., what sort of advice do you have for U.S. lawmakers about preparing for potential Russian meddling uh, as we get into these crucial couple of weeks? Well, first of all, it's about cyberspace, but second, it's about social media. Because what we are seeing, and we have also our elections, and we have been monitoring our social media and all the patterns, we see that uh, there is really very skillful manipulation of data, of facts, uh, targeting people, spreading lies. And this is something where I believe governments and social media uh, industry should cooperate much more, much better. And mm -hmm. we need also to raise awareness of the public. Because if you share something and there is no kind of fact-checking in between, mm -hmm. this is very serious. Has Facebook really uh, been cooperative with the Latvian government moving forward, or have they been a bit uh, wishy-washy? I think that we have established good cooperation. Of course, we also should respect the independence of Facebook or any of uh, social media, uh, but we have seen that they are really making good effort to tackle some of those fake news, to tackle some of those accounts. And we have got a very good uh, cooperative pattern. We'll see how 
we will be cooperating through our elections and mm -hmm. beyond, but uh, I think that the attitude is changing. So as one of the few openly gay diplomats uh, at your level, um, how has your life really changed since publicly coming out in 2014? Uh, not much, as you see, I'm the foreign yeah. minister still, but uh, I think that simply uh, there have been, of course, uh, some attacks uh, in the internet uh, space, and mm -hmm. some people think that this is something that uh, should never have happened, but in general, I would say that the life continues without a huge change. Well, that's the great. exception is that I'm sometimes being asked this question. By <laughs> it didn't happen ever before. So I see that. I think that's a pretty acceptable change so far. Uh, Edgar, thank, thank you, you much. so much for joining us. Uh, more AM to DM is up next. Welcome back, friends. Uh, we have a tweet here from the wonderful novelist Emily Gold. My thoughts are with women who work in newsrooms. Mm. Not everyone has the option of tapping out when they need to. Absolutely. 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 So our thoughts are with all our colleagues and peers today. And Dr. Blasey Ford just wrapped up her statement. Um, that was a lot. We are going to, of course, revisit it at the end of the show. So we're going to make more space to continue this conversation. Right. Um, because, you know, the questioning is happening now, um, but we'll be back to that soon. For now, though, mm -hmm. uh, Isaac had the idea uh, to do fire tweets today that are all from women. Um, about women's rage, about how women are dealing with this. Um, and so all of these tweets are from some of the smartest women we know and some of the smartest women we would love to know, okay? This first one comes from Amina So. We are not going to get anywhere productive until men do the work. They are not doing the work. They can start any day. We need them to do the goddamn work. Anytime, guys. <laughs> Anytime. Just, Just get in. Just and Get in there. And again, that's it's one of those tweets where I saw it on the timeline. I was like, this is directed at me, and it's something for me to sit and think with. Mm -hmm. All right, here Truly? we go. Today you tweeted, hi. So women, let me be blunt. That feeling is fucking rage. It is incandescent, fantastical, earth-shaking rage. Mm. And I'm seeing Oof. a lot of that on the timeline right now, especially even in the aim to dm hashtag, as you guys are dealing with watching this testimony. Yeah, and uh, Doctor, what she's doing is just so powerful. To see her visibly emotional, her voice is shaking. I saw someone note that, like, in some ways, she still sounds like a teenage girl in terms of her voice. And of course, we're all like, how is she doing this? But also, she is doing it. And for her to invoke her civic duty, that's rage in action, you know, mm. and it's it's something to behold. Something um, to witness. Truly, truly. Uh, this tweet comes from Elizabeth. If Miriam Webster's word of the year isn't shit show, I quit. <laughs> I quit. Amen. Just from, from your Twitter fingers to God's ears. I'd like to dedicate that tweet to Chuck Grasley's ass. Can we talk <laughs> about this for a moment? Yeah, go. I mean, you know what? You don't have to ask my permission. You can just keep talking, 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 talking. I talking, cannot talking. believe mm. <laughs> and talk over and interrupt. Mm. He talked for so long, and for I, for him to interrupt Senator, Fein, Senator Feinstein, like what? And then like Christine Blasey Ford is about to like become the nineteenth wonder of the world doing this testimony, and him being like, "Can we move the mic close? Mm. Like, shut your ass up and let this woman do what she needs to do." The fact that he interrupted too to be like, "Wait, no, I was supposed to introduce." Like, mm. you've had thirty years, mm. Chuck Grass. Mm. Sorry, I'm All sorry. Right. Nope. Reach. Allison, you tweeted, opening up a women's only gym that only has one class and it's rage screaming and the wait list is already three years long. I don't know if you can see a theme to the tweets that I was choosing this morning, but yeah. 
we're there with you. Okay, yeah. tweet of the day. Let's do it. Uh, this is a classic. It's from June uh, 2018, I think. Heard it before. It still, it still works. It's vintage. It's still for applies. today. It comes from Aaron Keene. Ready? Every woman I know has been storing anger for years in her body, and it's starting to feel like bees are going to pour out of all of our mouths at the same time. Now's the time. Now is the time. Beehive. The bees are gonna attack. Yeah. Listen, up next, I'm sitting down with Jeffrey Wright, who I know likes to get political on his oh, yeah, timeline. Sure he's ready. So we are gonna continue this I'm conversation. Sure he's Looking forward to that. Let's do it. Whew. This is the sit down, and I'm here with Jeffrey Wright, Emmy, Golden Globe, Tony winning actor, and star of the upcoming film. Hold the dark. Good morning. Thanks morning. for joining us. Thank you, Ashley. I just want to start. First off, you trimmed the beard a little bit. I can tell now that you're no longer filming. Yeah, from uh, the movie Hold the Dark, the beard was trimmed. Yeah, the, the beard was uh, wolf-like. Uh, it was lupin, lupine, and uh, you know, it, it was very lupine. Way. So that's yeah. your character in the movie is like an ex-naturalist, like a wolf expert. Yeah, he's a wolf expert. He is someone who's probably more comfortable in the wild than he is in the wilds of. Uh, human uh, society, uh, and he's, at the beginning of the story, a bit of a broken man. He's, he's um, kind of estranged from his family, estranged from his pack, mm -hmm. and he receives a letter from a woman whose son, uh, she says, has been taken by wolves, and she asks that he come to Alaska from Oregon to help her retrieve his bones, at the very least. Riley Keough plays her Tremendously. Beautifully. Uh, and so he goes on this journey, but I, in some ways, describe it as him, uh, a broken old wolf, mm. ailing, heading off into the wilderness to find who knows what. To find who knows what. You look so rugged in this film. <laughs> I'm just saying, you got the, the big jacket, like yeah. it looks incredible. I want to ask, what kind of preparation did you do? Do you have a lot of wolf fact knowledge now? Uh, you know, I just kind of, you know, tried to mine the wolf inside me, you know. <laughs> uh, I actually did find, we shot out in Alberta, uh, way out in Western Canada, and I found uh, a spot out there that was a wolf sanctuary. Mm. Um, drove out, incredibly beautiful out there, jagged, like kind of striated, uh, 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 steep, muscular mountains out there. The geology is very different than the Colorado Rockies. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And I drove out about two hours and found these wolves out there. Whoa. And uh, I spoke to the, to the folks who were their caretakers and studied them, incredibly playful animals, although their idea of play with you might lead <laughs> to blood loss for you. Uh, but, they're, but they are having a good time. Enormously playful, curious, sensitive, uh, and, and incredibly beautiful. And um, also, they structure themselves uh, in, within packs, uh, much like families do. Mm -hmm. And there's a hierarchy, a pecking order, but uh, every member of the pack, even the lowest member, is as meaningful to the whole. So one of the things that I took from it is a moment in the film where I, I, I call uh, a wolf. Mm. And what they describe is that when uh, any member of the pack uh, dies, mm. that there's a, there's a mournfulness in their howls, that they express this emotion through that. And so I tried to, to find the, the, the howl of, uh, of, a, of a broken, uh, broken everyman. You know? And that was based on my, 
my knowledge of the wolf. My man Jeffrey. Yeah. Would you give us that howl right now? No, you got tomorrow <laughs> on Netflix. You're gonna segue it into Hold the dog. Okay. Check that out. Also playing in a, in a couple of selected theaters uh, here in New York, LA. Uh, so, so if we got, yeah. we got to buy a ticket to ride. If we you do, read you the do, howl. you do. I think so. Speaking of packs, though, gotta wait for that moon. You are super active on Twitter. Oh God, you are just incredible. You get into a lot of political debates, mm. uh, and I want to, I want to. This is a quote. This is what you called Twitter, an evolutionary tool, and also a cesspool. Do you think online debate is a force for positive change? Uh, I think it could be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, Twitter becomes this weird, very like uh, tinfoil thin echo chamber mm. uh, at times. And I think it's not really a tool that allows for kind of deep, um, uh, deep understanding of the other, mm. particularly if the other that you are exchanging with is entirely resistant. Um, to new information, and I think what happens as well is that we find ourselves gathered in packs mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. Twitter, and we project onto that other pack uh, our worst imaginings about who they are and what they represent. And even if it has nothing to do with, uh, uh, it's not based in, in fact at all, we still, out of some fear or out of some desire to maintain, you know, uh, our place within our tribe, reject all information that, uh, that undoes our worst imagining of the other. And I think that's, you know, that happens, that's essentially what racists do mm. uh, when they fear uh, that brown person living in New York City that they've never encountered except via some weird television show, and they still refuse uh, because they're ignorant and fearful of that thing, um, to explore it in a meaningful way, uh, because if they do, it will undo all of the things that they've held on to uh, uh, so dearly, as a, perhaps as a means of self-protection. I mean, that's, that's so fascinating to me, because it does show in the way that you use Twitter that you try really not to do that, because you get into it with people. Uh, you know, you I try. do the back and forth. You have kind of long conversations. So what mm. I want to ask, what kind of motivates you to do that? And where do you find the time? Well, you know, um, I recently got into this uh, into this thing because I was my my you know I use Twitter to read the news um, mm -hmm. largely. I think it's a great way. It's a great news curator. Uh, it's also a great kind of polling tool whereby you can you can you can uh, get a sense of opinions around a given subject. But I found my TL just being hammered like for two days by a group of folks who were going after this woman is, uh, who I ex have exchanged with on Twitter for having opinion about something and just hammering, hammering, hammering. And it was just so malevolent and so uh, foul mm. that finally I just said, man, whoa, fuck this. Mm -hmm. And I stepped in and then of course they came after me. And then it's like you get a point, you, you reach a point where you start to encounter people who really aren't trying to share ideas or trying to understand the opposing or not opposing opinion, but they're really just trying to, uh, to, you know, to beat, you know, to beat the other down, mm. you know? And mm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm at a point where I'm like, uh, uh, I'm, nobody's, I'm nobody's beating me down, you know? Mm. I, I've never been one who uh, 
took kindly to uh, an attempted beatdown, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't mind punching somebody uh, metaphorically in the face if I have to. On Twitter, just to be On clear. Twitter. I mean, you do hang out with wolves. You hang out with wolves. I, I do. I get it. Um, uh, of many types. Of, of many different types. Listen, Christina Blasey Ford just gave her testimony. I saw. You, did you get a chance to watch it? Uh, a bit on the way over, yeah. What was your reaction to that? Uh, I thought uh, her initial statement, her initial description of the... Uh, the event as she remembers it was pretty shattering. Mm. Um, and uh, again, going back to this vilification um, of the other, uh, the way in which she describes receiving death threats. Mm -hmm. She specifically mentioned Twitter, the ways in which that uh, she's being maligned there, that her family is having to move from its home as though she's in a witness protection program. Um, it's uh, disgusting. Mm -hmm. It's um, we find I th we're in something of a horror show in terms of the political dialogue in our country, and um, I don't know how we're going to pull ourselves back from it. Um, I think this is a moment um, for all of us that requires deep self-reflection and mm -hmm. collective self-reflection um, regarding the way uh, we uh, behave with. Uh, our fellow American citizens with the world, um, but as, we as well, I think, uh, as men uh, and boys, uh, it's a time um, to really think about what we're hearing. We all know um, women, uh, so many women, who describe having had experiences in their youth that shaped the entirety of their lives. Mm. Um, uh, experiences with molestation, experiences with sexual assault. And for a group of people to deny what is factual reality at this time uh, when so many women are, 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 are being brave enough to come forward is extraordinarily depressing and needs to be fought against fiercely. Fought against fiercely. Do you think there is a first step or, or a way, you mentioned kind of the toxicity that is found in men and boys and the way in which we raise young men. Is there a step to be taken there? Is there something you would like to see change? I think we need to listen yeah. uh, big time. And I think um, uh, these women need to be heard, and I don't understand uh, the logic behind denying an FBI investigation mm -hmm. if uh, if it gets to the to the truth, and if uh, if uh, they're not telling the truth, then let's investigate it and find out. If he's telling the truth, let's investigate that and find out. Uh, let's do it comprehensively. Um, let all voices be heard, mm -hmm. and then move on. This is an extraordinary responsibility, mm -hmm. uh, being a justice on the Supreme Court. And uh, these things have come forward, and they should be, uh, they should be, uh, they should be uh, discussed, investigated thoroughly, and then we move on. Why try to block an investigation? Absolutely. Um, listen, we've also got to talk Westworld. I've got you here on the couch. Cool. I hear it's coming out in like 10 years, the next season, <laughs> uh, season three. Um, listen, I love this show so, so much. You do such an incredible job on it. Is there anything that you expect for Bernard? Anything you're looking uh, to expect happen in season three? Do you even know? Have you even seen scripts? How far out are oh, we? I think the writer's room just convened last week okay. uh, to start writing season three. Um, obviously, they have uh, Jonah, Nolan, Lisa Joy, our husband and wife uh, dynamic duos, uh, co-showrunners have the blueprint in their head and they have 
the outline uh, sketched pretty 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 thoroughly. But now comes the time to fill in those details to write uh, uh, the the scripts in full. And I do have a little bit of insight. Mm. Um, clearly, uh, we know that Bernard's crossed through the threshold and gone uh, through the other side of the door. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> I can just say this, he's gone off to, um, to recreate himself. All right. Yeah. He's gone off to recreate himself. Yeah, the old, the old Ford-controlled Bernard uh, stayed on the back side of that door. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be season three, New Bernard. New Bernard, baby. New Bernard, yeah. baby. All right, well, thank you so much, Jeffrey. Hold the Dark is streaming on Netflix starting tomorrow, September 28th, and you can catch it in select theaters. Up next, we've got more AM to DM. Thank you again thank you, so I much. Really session was 10 years ago, but for many millennials, the effects are long-lasting. Vanessa Wong, BuzzFeed News' deputy business editor, joins me now to discuss how the Great Recession has affected millennials then and now. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, for those of us who may not remember what happened a decade ago, take me that, back to that time. And how has that affected our generation, the millennial generation? So, back in 2008, we really saw the effects of the subprime mortgage crisis come crashing down on the U.S. economy. So, um, 10 years ago, the housing bubble collapsed. We saw foreclosures on the rise. Unemployment was ticking up to eventually reach 10%. Um, I guess like more specifically in September 2008, um, Lehman Brothers, which was like this massive um, investment bank, filed for bankruptcy. And um, then the stock market crashed, not only in the US, but globally. So it was like dark day. I know today feels like a really dark day for a lot of people, but um, you know, it was dark days then as well. I would suggest to any of our viewers who find this issue hard to understand, watch The Big Short. I learned a lot about that from The Big Short. But moving on, uh, so you wrote this piece and you actually asked millennial readers to write in about their experiences with the Great Recession and how it still affects them a decade on. What made you want to write that piece? Uh, well, I think um, millennials kind of grew up in a very difficult time and survived the recession with a lot of like financial and emotional scars. And I think I just wanted to kind of bring those out and continue to have those be heard so that millennials aren't memorialized as like the generation that blew it all on avocado toast because I feel like that's a very annoying and inaccurate and simplified um, narrative about what young adults prioritize right now. And the reality is that they are still dealing with, um, you know, years of missed opportunities and, um, years when they were just accumulating a lot of debt to try to get by after their parents and they themselves were unable to find work. I think some of the most interesting things that I've read about our generation, which some of the people talked about in your story, was the fact that 2008, I was in college, many millennials were in college, and a lot of people's parents were no longer able to afford sending them to college. What was something that spoke out to you? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of them. I mean, one of the things that really came together for me was just how um, a lot of millennials are still dealing with debt, and a lot of that debt dates back to very unexpected financial turmoil during their early adulthood. I mean, some families might have had, for example, college savings for their children, but you know, when you lose your job and you have to pay for your mortgage, um, that money goes somewhere else. So um, some of the readers who wrote in just talked about loans, 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 like credit card debt being taken out just so they could like you know help buy groceries um, taking out more student debt than they had anticipated because their parents savings were no longer there 
um, you know, that, and those, those are debts that they continue to deal with even now in 2018. Um, there was another reader who wrote in uh, who said something very moving about how um, they resent the older generation who told them to pursue their dreams only to tell them later on that there was actually nothing there for them. That stuck out to me too. Yeah, I mean, it's a very painful and honest feeling. Um, another one that spoke out to me very personally was someone who wrote in and said that they can't afford to have children and it's something that they really want. It breaks their heart that it's not something that's, very, that's feasible to them. I mean, you know, some of the other responses that have got, I've gotten since the story I have published has, have been interesting, like um, people writing in and saying, hey, you know, like every generation has a hard time, like don't think that you're the only ones, but I think there's something very specific about how the millennial generation's problems have been treated in like the public conscious, and like I don't think that people want to validate their experiences for some reason, you know? And, um, these these are real pains. Like no matter how you want to compare them to the, the troubles of other generations, I don't think it's um, fair to tell um, young adults today that you know the problems that they're dealing with aren't uh, real and legitimate. It's also interesting that the recession is blamed for a lot of the problems for the generation before us is dealing with. But then when we try to say, hey, this might have affected us too, right? We get a bunch of pushback. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for writing this piece. It was really great. We're going to tweet it out now. And thank you so much for joining me. Don't go away. More AM to DM is up next. All right, y'all. This is The Sit Down. I'm here with the rappers Remy Ma and Papoose, the stars of the Meet the Mackies on VH1. Good morning, y'all. Good morning. I'm feeling this racing look. I feel like... Coordination going on? I didn't even realize you got that. But right, yeah, right, right. you look like you're going to the Almost same place. You're matching my streak. Okay. I love, I love it. Well, y'all are our black love goals. Like, people oh, speak so you. lovingly of how you support thank each you. other. And so it's, it's great to meet you both. Thank you. Um, you've been together for 13 years. Yes. Uh, married for 10. And now you're expecting your first child after a series of fertility and IVF mm -hmm. treatments. You know, that's a lot, right? It is. <laughs> And then you're doing the show Meet the Mackies. What was it like, you know, having cameras in your lives, in your home, while you're going through something that's pretty intimate? Um, well, we, we've been, been doing reality TV for a little while, so mm -hmm. people got to really see the whole journey. They saw us wanting to have a child. Mm -hmm. They saw us actually conceiving. They saw us have a miscarriage and lose the baby. So, you know, it kind of only made sense that when we actually went through with the in vitro fertilization and it worked that we allowed the people to, to see it. Like, I think there's so many times where women and just couples in general, they they have these trials and tribulations where they're trying to conceive and it doesn't work. So it, it, it was a great thing. It was a decision that we came up with together to let the world see it, to know that miracles do happen. That's great. What about you? Um, what's it been like for you as a father, soon to be father? Oh man, um, like my wife said, you know, thank God for the experience we had on Love and Hip Hop. You know, it kind of prepared us to be able to let the cameras in our lives on Meet the Maggie. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great experience just to show the world, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Wait Absolutely. one second. You're not going to tell them how you're like super excited and you document every single moment of the baby's oh, life? you talking about the baby? <laughs> oh, Golden Child. I thought you were talking about just the show. Just in general. Oh, like, well, we now we talking. Oh. like, camera, how we doing? Oh, I'm not missing one. I refuse to miss one moment. I feel uh -huh. like somebody's talking over there. <laughs> I, I, I feel like um, in life, you know, sometimes we take things for granted. Mm -hmm. And then we look back and we reminisce. I don't want to do that. You know, mm -hmm. this is a special moment mm -hmm. and I want to make sure 
I soak it all up. I don't want to miss one second of this pregnancy. I love that. And I wanted to ask you, you know, Cardi B having uh, her pregnancy and you're pregnant. Hip hop has not always been very good to women. It still isn't as right. good as it should be to black mm -hmm. women in particular. Uh, do you think things are beginning to change at all? Um, I think just women in general, not just in hip hop, but in entertainment mm -hmm. period, a lot of times we're, we're forced to put our families on hold because of work or because of whatever reason society or publicists or just the industry itself makes you feel like you can't be seen pregnant or you can't be with the child while you're doing certain things. And it, it's hard sometimes when you feel like you have to choose between your career and things that you've always wanted and gonna get and then having a family, you, you tend to push it off. I know so many women that was like, I'm gonna do it later, I'm gonna do it later. And then sometimes you realize you said, I'm gonna do it later for so long that later becomes now it's an issue. Right. We don't realize that our bodies, we may feel young at heart, mm -hmm. but our bodies are changing. So I, I think it, it's just really sad that women who we are the, the child bearers uh, of, of this world, just in general, we, we get the pressure put on us where we're, we're forced to choose. And I think just more recent and more recent times, women are like, you know what? I can do everything. I've been wearing all these other hats yeah. in so many <laughs> different other fields mm -hmm. and different ways. I can do this at the same time. And when you have people like Cardi or myself or just so many other women that just don't care and they're like, you know what, now's the time I'm going to do it. And if it's meant to be, my, my career still be great mm -hmm. and my child will be great as well and I'm just going to do it. So I, I salute to all the Serenas and yeah, all of those Beyonce, people, yeah. Beyonce, who yeah. was just like, you know what, I'm a mom, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm a human being. Bless that. Bless that. Uh, I got to ask you about your Instagram post the other day. Sure. Um, you, after uh, Bill Cosby's sentencing hearing, right, that news came out, you posted on Instagram, personally, um, I'm not buying this BS. Uh, I do not contone rape in any shape, form, or fashion, but I believe he's not guilty. Uh, why did you feel the need to, to talk about Bill Cosby's sentencing publicly? Sure. I was upset. For me to see Bill Cosby being uh, hauled away in handcuffs at 81 years old. First and foremost, like I said, I don't condone rape in any shape, form, or fashion, but I don't believe he's guilty. Where's the physical evidence? There's no physical evidence. How do, how do we convict this man and send him away to prison? And um, I just feel like it's an injustice. It's an attack on his legacy. And I, I just feel like they don't want that legacy to live on. And I also, from my observation, it doesn't look like Bill Cosby even knows what's going on at this point. I feel like they're taking advantage of him at an old age. The young Bill Cosby was very woke, very sharp, and very well-spoken, as we all know. And the old man that I, I'm seeing being dragged away in handcuffs, he doesn't look like the Bill Cosby that I grew up watching and, you know, observing. You know, you got guys like, why isn't Charlie Sheen? Why isn't um, Harvey Weinstein? Why isn't Donald Trump? Why isn't... Uh, Matt Lauer, Matt Lauer, um, Matt Lauer, <laughs> Matt Lauer. Why is why 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 aren't none of these guys being incarcerated for those same allegations? Donald Trump been accused of groping and inappropriately kissing women without their permission since the 1980s. Don't take my word for it. You can look this up. So why are we digging back 35 years ago and, and we're locking up Bill Cosby and we're saying he's a rapist and everybody's <clears throat> going along with it without doing any research? You know, I feel like. Um, us as a people, the reason why so many of us are agreeing with it because we're looking at it as isolated incidents, mm -hmm. but that's not what it is. If you go back to the 60s, there was an uprising when things like this happened because 
they didn't tolerate it. They knew that it was systematic oppression. It's a system that's designed to go against us and in the favor of the more favorable, more desirable people. But, but, but what would you say, um, and there's a lot of nuance there, there's a lot that you're, you're bringing into this, but what would you say to people who go, okay, Weinstein, Matt Lauer, certainly, you know, That's Justice Bill Kavanaugh, O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly, they're, we could go on all day naming these guys, right? But what would you say to people who are like, yeah, but Bill Cosby had his own set of circumstances. So what would you say to people who, you know, disagree with you? I would say, where's the physical evidence? How do we convict this man in the public court how, with, with no physical evidence? There's no rape kits. There's no footage of it? someone going into one location, yeah, coming in yeah. and coming out of the location, you know, incoherent. And to me, I just, with me, we, we feel similar for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have I, you been talking yeah, about it? Of course we talk about it. It's, it's a hot I mean, topic that's right like, now. So with me, because I don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, my I thing stop. is more so, I've been incarcerated before, right. and I know kind of how the system works. So I saw someone, I was like, well, he said one time that he gave some, he offered somebody Benadryl or some, something like that. Mm-hmm. But I know how the system works. They their objective is to convict. Mm-hmm. It's not to prove that you're innocent. So there's been so many cases where they say, say this or agree to this, and this will be lighter on you. If not, if you go to trial or if you do this, this will be worse. So uh, there's so many instances where I see people pretty much agreeing to things that Forced. they didn't do in order to avoid a possible harsh sentence that there's no way that they can avoid. So that's one thing. And then there's there's 60 women that are involved in this. I just find it so hard to believe that out of 60 women, all of them were afraid. All of them were scared. None of them went and told their friend who told another friend. Like, this is just, it's just too many to me. If it was six, maybe, all right, you probably have to. And then their reasoning was like, you know, I'm afraid of his, his influence and how much money he has. He has a lot more money and, and influence now than he did then. Like, he was about to buy a whole network. So, you know, I just, it, I feel like when there's one person's word against another person's word, it's, it's just difficult to make these decisions because it's pretty much what these women are saying versus someone else. Do I think every single person is telling a lie? Do I think, no. Do I think they're all telling 150% of the truth and that's it? No, I don't believe that neither. But I just feel a lot of times people go to prison for reasons that the court is saying that they didn't do. Uh Well, in in that case, you know, it would be a different scenario for me because if you rape one person, you rape too many. Yeah, absolutely. But I absolutely... So what if he raped one of the 60 women? That would be horrible. That would be a nightmare. He deserved to go to jail. Immediately, mm-hmm. but I don't see no proof that he raped one woman. I don't see no physical evidence at all. It's just all word of mouth. There was women on there that was saying that they were addicted to cocaine. One of them admitted to um, what was um, it? Beverly the, Johnson. That she admitted to she like admit in her book doing cocaine she while she was cocaine. pregnant, and she slept with this person, and that person. So I'm signed. confused. It's just a lot with me. There's a lot going on about okay. the credibility. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I appreciate you talking through it, right? Yeah. Because sometimes people. Uh, if they feel that what they're saying is not the what, what everyone opinion. says, they but, just like. But that's up. and I think that's what's wrong with our society today. A lot of people are just jumping on the bandwagon just because a jury of your peers say that we found you guilty. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make you guilty. Do you right. think I tell people all the time? Do you think every single person that is in prison is guilty? Mm-hmm. Do you think the judge and the jury and the police and the DA got it right every single time? Mm-hmm. No. The same way 
every single person that's walking free in these streets are is not innocent. There's plenty of people that should be behind bars and that have committed crimes that are walking around here free. And I just feel like everyone's entitled to their opinion. But when I see some of these stands that people are taking, like if they were there and mm-hmm. they, they know for a fact, it's, it's a very touchy subject because it's women right. talking about being violated and their bodies being taken advantage of. So I get it. No one wants to say like, oh, I think she's lying or I think, th- but mm-hmm. I mean, I'm also looking at the other side right. of someone who has a family and a wife and the children and whatever the case may be, they go through things as well. So, you know, like my husband said, you know, if even one was correct, mm-hmm. then absolutely, yes, you yeah. deserve no matter how much time went by. Yeah. But I just feel like a lot of them are bandwagoners. Right. Absolutely. Well, and you know, I appreciate what you both were saying. I'm, I'll be honest, I don't agree, right? But you know, I you appreciate right that we have to let, have the right to let people go on, mm-hmm. even if you're not vibing with what they have to say. To that point, okay. Nicki Minaj <laughs> is someone who you have certainly had disagreements with, and you know she keeps going on. I, I, I did want to ask, you know, like where are you in your relationship, or how you feel about Nicki? I mean, in life in general, I, I'm doing great. I have a loving husband. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting a baby in two more months. My career's going great. So many different things that I've always wanted to wanted to do was coming true, and. I just don't dwell on things that I feel like I pretty much just zipped up and, and, and handled. Like sometimes people, um, they like to hold on to things and a year later or two years later, even in, in interviews, so what do you think about this? And I'm just like, mm, I don't think about it at all. Mm-hmm. Like I have so many positive things mm-hmm. that are going on with me that you know anything negative is just, that's what it is, it's something negative and it's over there for me. Positivity, that's what we focus on. Right on, right on. I wish you both the best. Thank um, you. Again, friends, you can watch Meet the Mackies October 1st, 9 p.m. on VH1. Look at this love. Look at this. You missed it, baby. Look at Golden child. Black love. 4 a.m. to DM in a moment. Look at that. He was so excited. Golden child. What a morning. What a morning. There was a moment, I tweeted about this, but there was a moment when I realized that Isaac was on the, you know, out on set two, mm-hmm. sitting down with Jeffrey Wright, who like, you know, we Incredible. certainly- We've admired since Angels in America mm-hmm. and certainly Westworld and all the projects he's doing now. I had my AirPods in listening to Dr. Christine Blasey Ford talk about the chemical and, and like, like, physiological impact of trauma on memory and on the body while I am preparing to interview Remy Ma and Papoose. 2018. Yeah, I saw saw you tweet about that, and I truly do feel like it really sums up 2018. And of course, like this morning, all eyes were on that hearing, and rightfully so. Uh, Dr. Ford gave such an incredible statement, and now, Basically looking like almost under questioning, but really just answering questions with such empathy and such strength and such bravery. It's Mm -hmm. incredible to watch. Yeah, fuck what you heard. That's a trial. Mm. And everyone sitting in that hearing knows. They've put that woman on trial. Nothing like that looked like, you know, a typical, that looked like a criminal proceeding. And Mm. that's important to think about. Well, of course, You've been tweeting about Christine Blasey Ford's statement and her undergoing questions throughout the show, and so we wanted to kind of talk about some of your tweets. I was struck, again, she, annihilation, and then she said that in her written statement, was like, why come forward and suffer through the personal annihilation if it's for nothing? Uh, Yeah, no, and it was incredible to hear her speak to that, and Tom Namako, to the point that we were just making, tweeted, this looks an awful lot like a trial. And we talked with Nidhi Prakash about this earlier in the show, and basically how Republicans are really hoping to frame 
frame this as a trial, which really gives Kavanaugh the innocence until proven guilty, right. whereas Democrats are trying to frame it, and this is correct, as what it is, which is a job interview. Mm -hmm. And imagine if these were coming up in a job interview. So really think about the way you think. I made a slip up right in between segments. I called it a trial, mm. you know? It, it is a that way. hearing, mm -hmm. but it is very much starting to feel like a trial. And to take that point even further, right? Because if you, if it's a trial, like you said, like the burden of proof is heavy. Right, like that, that's a big deal. Now, I would say not only is it a job interview, it's like an interview you have with your boss when you're asking for a promotion. Mm. Where if you don't mm. get the promotion, it's mm. not like you're fired, mm. it's not like you're out on the streets. You might have conversations about next steps to get the promotion again down the road. Like it's just so, this man's life is not going to be ruined mm. if he does not become a justice on the Supreme Court. Whereas Dr. Ford, you've got Annihilation. Annihilation. The stakes are just so different for them. Um, Ivan Mayers, you said, the problem needs to be solved. We do not tell, but we hide the pain. My thoughts go out to her. Again, so many survivors watching and, and just having to work through this because this is not a passive experience watching a testimony like that. And I saw you guys saying it on the timeline too. We would bring up, we would go to the hearing and I saw some of you saying, you know what, I need to take a break. Totally understand. I need to step back. Totally and of understand. course, totally understand, feel the same way. Whew. Rick tweeted, could this be a case of mistaken identity? Absolutely not, Ford tells Feinstein. Yeah. Now, absolutely not. That is, again, this kind of argument that we see keep being put forward. Dr. Ford's answer, absolutely not. Yeah, and I'm glad I was able, that was when I had my AirPods in, to hear that exchange between Ford and Feinstein because I know we've talked about, like, you know, sometimes she sounds like her voice is quivering, she seemed emotional, understandably so. She sounded very firm in that moment. That absolutely not was, like, very confident. So... Wow, what a morning. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the madness is not over yet. Kavanaugh will be testifying uh, in just a few hours, I guess, but we want to thank all of the people who participated in the show. First of all, everyone watching, thank you for trusting us with this morning because it's no small thing. And to our guests, Nidhi Prakash, Jamia Wilson, Jacqueline Friedman, Edgar Rinkovitz of Latvia, that happened, uh, Remy Ma, Papoose, Vanessa Wong, Stephanie McNeil, and of course, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright, and seriously, we're gonna have so much to talk about <laughs> tomorrow. Obviously, <laughs> we will be right back yeah. here. It will be Friday, 10 a.m. Until then, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself.